be this morning, chapter 3. Continuing in our series, Jesus for Everyone. And the Jesus that we're going to learn about this morning is not one that everyone wants to hear about, but one that uh, nonetheless is just as uh, just as true. And so we're, we're going through this, and Luke, as we've talked about, is a historian, but he's a, a historian who is telling a story. And he's going to use a very familiar format this morning to tell us uh, this story. But before we get there, we're going to read from Luke chapter 3, and we're going to meet someone uh, in this chapter that, uh, that we've already met in Luke's narrative. At least we met him uh, sort of as a fetus, uh, when Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, uh, the very young yet-to-be-born John uh, leaps at the sound of Mary's voice whenever Mary shows up and uh, he somehow knows who has walked up, somehow knows what has happened there. Elizabeth interprets that for us and says that, uh, you know, this is, this is my, he, he, he's jumping at the, the, the sound of you walking up because you're carrying uh, the Messiah, like it, it is, it is a pretty phenomenal story. We looked at this back in December when we were walking through, uh, leading up to Christmas and, and looking at Advent. And uh, John is already, or Luke has already spent a lot of time introducing this guy, John. It's interesting the way that that, that Luke is going to do this. He will talk less about John than Matthew and some of the other gospel writers, but he spends more time introducing John than the other gospel writers. And the reason for that is because of the purpose that John serves in his narrative. We saw uh, his dad's encounter with the angel. We saw uh, exactly what it is that, uh, th- that John would do, the angel's kind of statement of purpose, that John would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And then we saw Zechariah's song of prophecy. The, uh, real quick, let's remind ourselves of what was happening in these early days. Before we even really get into our text, let's remember what this guy, John, that we're going to meet today, we're going to get to know, and I'm just going to tell you, he's an odd, he's an odd duck. Uh, as we get to know John and as we, as we see what it is that he's doing and how he's saying things, let's remind ourselves uh, of what we looked at leading up to Christmas uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. This is Zechariah, his Benedictus, he is... He is celebrating what is happening. He's just been able to speak for the first time in nine months. And this is what he says. This is the the, the end of that song there. He says, And you, child, talking about John, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this is what we read during Advent as we awaited the arrival of the Savior. And now we study about John's ministry as the Messiah arrives, no longer waiting in hope, Now we have hope in action. John was out in the wilderness until this public appearance. Uh, And like I said, John is not normal. He's not your standard preacher. He's not uh, like me up up here with, uh, uh, you know, on stage with a mic and kind of doing the the thing. He is an odd, he's an odd guy. And there's no way around that. None of the gospel writers even try to uh, hide that. 
And not only is he not your, your standard run-of-the-mill kind of guy, uh, he is not really interested in pretending to be one either. He's not there to make friends at all. You ever been around somebody that does street preaching? You ever been like walking somewhere and you see like street preachers, they're, they're out. Maybe, uh, maybe you saw one on a college campus. That's pretty popular to have them on a college campus. Or maybe uh, you were down like in Market Square someplace and you saw a street preacher there. I remember being in downtown Louisville one time. I had just walked out of a conference. Uh, There's about 25,000 men at this conference. Uh, almost all of us were pastors or on a church staff of some sort. Uh, and there were three to four street preachers scattered about uh, downtown Louisville, kind of where all of the, the restaurants were, where we were headed out to eat and eat and, and have lunch. And I'm not sure if these, these street preachers were there because they, they thought our particular brand of theology or whatever we were doing there in that conference, if they thought that, that what we were doing was not Christian and we ourselves were lost and not believers, or if they just happened to be there on the same day and our past just happened uh, to intersect. But here's what I can tell you uh, I remember about what those guys were preaching. One, they were bold. There's no way around it. Agree with or disagree with what they had to say. They were absolutely bold. They were also very, very loud. Uh, how these guys manage, uh, it is a skill to get out there and do street preaching uh, in the sense that it, it requires some technical know-how. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a mic on. Um, a- Abby likes to give me a hard time about my preacher voice uh, and that I use a preacher voice sometimes whenever I need to and whenever the especially whenever I'm not mic'd. And so there's, there's a certain measure that's required for you to be able to get loud enough. Uh, you go back and you read some of the old texts that were written as like manuals and instruction manuals for, for preachers. Uh, and uh, for instance, like in, in lectures to my students by Spurgeon, there's whole chapters about how to take care of your voice and how to get really, really loud. Uh, because they didn't have mics. They'd be preaching to thousands of people no amplification. So you, that's a skill that you have to develop. And these guys were quite loud. You could hear them all over the place. And from what I could hear from their theology, uh, what they had to say, uh, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't wrong per se. Most of what they had to say was, was pretty, pr- pretty good. Um, now, we can debate about whether or not their style reflected the person of Jesus, how effective it was. Obviously, as I stand up here with my mic on, uh, and, and, and here doing this on a Sunday morning, I think there's better ways for us to be able to uh, share the gospel. But r- regardless of what, what I think about the, the methods that they were using, the other thing that I know is that those guys were not there to make friends at all. They did not care what people had to say. Again, I don't know that that's the best approach, but they really didn't care at all. The, they had a message, they were going to preach it, and you could take it or leave it. And of course, you get you know, 20,000 plus pastors in the same place, uh, there's going to be a fight. Uh, they're going to argue about something. And so there was plenty of arguing that was going on between uh, the, 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 the pastors that were coming out of this conference with these guys that were, uh, that were, that were saying all this stuff. But even as they tried to argue with them, uh, they would have none of it. Uh, they did not listen to anything that they had to say because they had a message and they were not trying to make friends at all. That's kind of John's approach here. He doesn't really care about whether you like him or not. He's bold. He's proverbially in people's face, if not literally in their face. And the message that he needs to get out there uh, is one that he feels is urgently 
uh, important and uh, also is not one that's going to gain him a huge following. Uh, so let's read about John and see if we can't learn a bit about uh, Jesus from this message about John uh, and see how Luke kind of sets this section up. So Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor over Judea and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysantius, I, I practiced those and I still got them wrong, uh, of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went, into all, went to all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We'll stop there for now. Now, before we get to John's street preaching, and before we get to the message that he's, he's doing, we've got to see this kind of initial passage where Luke sets it up for us, where Luke introduces this guy, uh, this guy John, uh, and, and, and he tells us some things about John, uh, but he also did some things in this passage that if you're, if you're not paying attention, you won't realize what Luke has just done. Uh, first, he's giving us uh, the kind of historical setting. Uh, in some ways, as we go through the book of Luke, we've already said Luke is a historian, and in some ways, whenever we go through the book of Luke, he's going to work just like a historian, exactly like you would expect a, a, a historian to work, kind of documenting uh, dates and facts and figures, kind of laying all that out there. He's going, to, uh, he's going to do exactly what we think should happen. Here he gives us the setting of when these things are happening. Other times, and we'll see this this morning, he won't. Uh, we'll see his timeline gets a bit out of whack as we go throughout his introduction and, and telling the story about John because he's a historian, but he's a historian who is telling a story. And so he's going to weave all of this together uh, a little bit, and he's not really here to report a timeline of events so much as he is here to communicate to us about who Jesus is. But for now, he's exactly what we would expect, at least kind of, sort of. He's telling us when these things have taken place. He's moved past the boy Jesus that we looked at last week, and now John, uh, he, he, he is uh, focusing on him, the slightly older cousin that is taking the stage. We've got the rulers, the new rulers in place from where Luke started his story with the Christmas story. This is not the same Herod from when Jesus was born, the one that ordered all of the children under two to be slaughtered. This is a different, uh, this is a different Herod. Uh, that was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. Uh, and Herod and Philip are uh, sons that have kind of inherited portions of Herod the Great's kingdom. Uh, so he's kind of divvied it up a little bit, kind of spreading it around amongst his uh, his children, and uh, they've inherited portions of Herod's kingdom, and then it also kind of gives us the Jewish leaders uh, as well that, that ruled as the high priest, and so he lays out all of the kind of important historical figures in the town and the place where all of this is happening. So what does that tell us? Why is it that he includes all of that in there? Well, it does give us a historic setting. It'll help us as we get later on in the gospel to kind of understand who's in charge and who the power players are. Uh, but one of the main things that this tells us as, as he introduces John and in here just in a few minutes, Jesus, uh, is that we are about to get introduced to real people 
that lived in a real place, that lived real lives in a real time, in a real country, in a real place and setting. That is a big deal. That may not seem like a big deal to you because most of you, I think, probably walked in here this morning assuming that to be the case, that Jesus was real, that John was real, that they really lived and they really did these things. But I can tell you that is far from a given whenever you start talking in the, in the larger landscape of theology. I remember listening to a podcast once where someone was trying to deflect the question about the historical Jesus, and they, they kind of ducked the, the questionnaire by saying, it doesn't really matter if Jesus did these things. It doesn't really matter if, 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 if he, was, he was saying all the things that, that the gospels say that he says, or for that matter, it doesn't even matter if he lived at all. His life is really just a metaphor for us all to follow. We can be Christians if we carry out the ethical example of Jesus. It doesn't matter if he was real or not. It doesn't matter if if, if his birth was real or not. It doesn't matter if his death and his resurrection were real or not. It's all just a metaphor for us. Now listen, I appreciate the desire to kind of draw our hearts and our minds to the ethical teaching of Jesus and the acknowledgement that his life, death, and resurrection serve a greater purpose than just a historical event. But let's not be foolish here. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection mean absolutely nothing if they did not really happen. If they are just a story, then we should not be gathered here this morning. As best as I know, there is not a church that meets around the gospel of Batman. I don't think there's a church that that meets out there. There might be. Um, There's some pretty crazy stuff out there on the internet. So there might be. uh, But as best I know, there is not a church that gathers. It's a good story. You can learn so much ethically from Batman. I like Batman. You can learn a lot, but it's a story. He's not real. And you don't build your life around that. Jesus, on the other hand, is real. And that is important. That's an important thing for us to acknowledge. If you put Jesus and Batman in the same category, you can call yourself a lot of things, but Christian is not one of them. That is not the Christian message. Jesus was a real man that walked this earth and lived in a real place in a real time. Which, as an aside, we should probably also recognize where this is taking place. This is not taking place in Nashville. This is not taking place in Atlanta or New York City. This is not taking place anywhere over here in this country. This is happening in the Middle East, in the Jordanian desert. So what that means is that Jesus was not uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, and a a layered blowout hairdo. That is not what Jesus looked like. That's not who Jesus was. We worship a Middle Eastern Jew that looked and sounded like a Middle Eastern Jew, because that's what he was. And I'll be honest, I wonder how many people today that call themselves Christians would reject Jesus before they ever heard a word come out of his mouth because he had way darker skin than them and he didn't have a southern accent. I wonder how many people would even listen to what he had to say just based on what he looked like. I wonder if they would listen to him let alone forsake everything and follow him. But that is exactly who we worship. We would do well to remember that Jesus lived in a real time, in a real place, and there are a lot of implications that come with that. 
There's a second thing that Luke is doing here, and I actually think it's the primary thing that Luke is doing here as he introduces uh, John to us. He is following a script that the Old Testament has already put in place for us uh, and, 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 and teaches us. And it, it, inter, it introduces us to two things. This script in the Old Testament introduces us to two things. One, a prophet, and two, the confirmation that God is speaking or God is about to speak. Listen to see if this one sounds familiar. This is from Jeremiah chapter 1. The words Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. Does that sound familiar? Kind of laying out the kings and kind of where they are in their reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And until the end of the 11th year, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity, captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Or maybe this one sounds familiar. From Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Does that one sound familiar to you? What is happening there? And this happens with some of the other prophets in the Old Testament as well. This is a formula that the Old Testament writers often followed that tells us something big is about to happen. God is about to speak through a prophet. But it tells the reader, listen up, pay attention, this is important. The God who has been silent for over 400 years is about to speak through a prophet again. You haven't heard him for a long time, but that's what's about to happen. So as he introduces the kings and the rulers and all those that are in, in power in that area, it's a way of saying, this is an event to be marked. This is a thing for you to know. So yes, historically, Luke is making a historical note and saying, pay attention here. But more than that, he's saying, pay attention here, not because of the history, but because of what's about to be said. Because the prophet is about to enter the scene. Because the prophet has something to say, and it comes from God. And so we're finally, formally introduced to John, the man that lived out in the wilderness, and John comes with a message. It tells us here that his message was one that was focused on baptism. That's how he gets his nickname, John the Baptist. Not because he went to the First Baptist Church of Jordan, but because he actually showed up and said, it's time for you guys to be baptized. His message was centered around the baptism of repentance. Now, John's baptism, though it looked a lot like the baptism that we practice today, it really wasn't exactly the same. Some elements carry on, some elements are similar, but not all of them. They're not exactly, so some aspects remain. Our baptism today, what we do whenever we, we bury somebody, whenever we, we dunk them down in the water, which by the way, that's just what that word baptize means. It means to dunk under. Um, they didn't translate that word into what it actually meant whenever they were translating it because the, the the church at the time didn't do a whole lot of dunking. They did more sprinkling. So they said, we'll just make up a new word. We'll make up the word baptize uh, instead of translating it into dunk under. But what we do whenever we baptize and we dunk people under, the first and primary thing we are doing is we are presenting to you the picture of what Jesus did, his death, burial, and resurrection. And saying that this is the same thing that has happened. An old creation, a new creation. That is exactly what is happening in baptism. It is not primarily a baptism that 
talks about repentance. So that is a part of what we talk about, that someone was, uh, was one way and now they are another, that they, they were a part of a lifestyle and now they are entering into a new lifestyle. That's a part of what is, what is happening, but there's so much more meaning that baptism takes on after Jesus' death. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet, so that's not what this can mean whenever John is baptizing people. Um, John's baptism focuses on something else. Uh, it focuses on the need for change. Specifically, the word is repentance. So we'll read a bit more about it, and then I'll explain a, a little bit about what John was saying and why it made people so mad about him. And Luke's going to go on, and he quotes from Isaiah, uh, from, uh, from Isaiah in verses 4 through 6. So we have this kind of direct quote that's there. And what's interesting is that Luke quotes three verses, three verses here. But Mark and Matthew only quote, they, they quote the same like little, little piece of scripture here, but they only quote one. They just quote uh, the, the, the very beginning one. So if you go back and you look in, uh, if you go back and you look in verse, uh, verse four, they quote the first part there. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But Luke keeps going. He has a fuller citation from the book of Isaiah. He has more that's there. So if you see that kind of thing, you don't always get the right answer on this one. You don't always know why a writer does something. But it's good to ask the question, why did Luke include more where the other two didn't? Why wasn't it sufficient for Luke to just have that one verse? Why is there more there? What has to do with the story that Luke is telling? Remember what we talked about last week. Luke's gospel focuses in on subverting our expectations and correcting the expectations. So tearing down what you thought was supposed to happen and rebuilding it with something bigger, better, and stronger. And that's what he's doing here. It comes out clearly in the contrast as he keeps on going and he cites the rest of these verses. Valleys that were there now are going to be filled and raised. Mountains uh, will be made low. Paths will be made, uh, crooked paths will be made straight. Rough places will be smoothed out. And then the one that's probably the most subversive of all, all flesh shall see God's salvation. Not just the Jews, all. And so what all Luke's doing is he's supplementing the story that he's telling, which is that how things were are about to change because of what's about to happen. Because this guy comes and he's, he's, he's preparing the way for the Messiah that's going to come, and this Messiah is going to change everything from what you think it is and what it actually is. Which leads us to the next section of John's teaching. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. This is a great, great message for church growth whenever the crowds show up. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And on that day, so many people joined his church, and the church grew larger than it ever has been. Just kidding. That's not what happened at all. Like I said, John is not there to make friends at all. He is not there to make anyone happy. This crowd shows up, and he's not interested about whether they ever show up again. They need to hear this 
message, not there to make friends. He pulls no punches. He says, you've been relying on your heritage to keep you safe. Your life doesn't match up that you're actually part of the people of God. You don't live like it. You don't look like it. No one can tell that you're any different than the people that are around them. You're syncretized with all the people around you in the sense that you've kind of borrowed from this religion. You borrowed from that religion. You borrowed from the secular religion of the Romans. You kind of incorporated all these different things. And you may have Abraham as your father, but you don't look anything like the people of God. And you're certainly not going to continue this way. Don't be fools. God can keep this promise with the rocks if he wants to. Your freeloading days as the people of God are about over, and it's your own fault. That is John's message. You're supposed to bear good fruit, but your fruit is rotten, and no one wants a rotten tree in their orchard, and you're about to be cut down. We've got a handful of trees in our yard at our, at our house, and uh, there's a couple of trees that are kind of off uh, back to, to, to themselves, a couple of pear trees. And the first couple of years that we lived there, um, man, they would get pretty big, not like Bradford pear trees, like, like legit pear trees. Uh, and they, 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 they grew, and there were so many pears coming off of that that like it was hard to walk over there around there because they just kept falling off, and you couldn't find your footing. These were big old pears. Um, they... they it, they looked amazing. They, 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 were, they were very healthy. The tree was healthy. It was growing like crazy. But the last couple of years, they've gotten some sort of a, some sort of a, a blight, and it just gets worse and worse. The limbs are brown. The leaves are brown. The, the fruit that comes out on those trees is rotten. It's nasty. It smells bad in the summer because that stuff falls off, and it's all over there. So like I'm mowing over, and it's all just mush. It's all gross. It's It's, it's terrible. And so I looked up, like, how do you fix this? Is there, like, something I can spray on there or something like that? And literally everything that I've read is there's one way to fix this. Chop down the tree and burn it. That's the only thing you can do to fix this. That's it. Chop it down and burn it. And don't just go and, like, throw it in a pile because if you go and throw it in a pile, the disease that's in that tree is going to spread somewhere. It doesn't just go away. It will continue to be there. And even though the tree is dead, it's still diseased and it still continues to affect everything around it. There's only one way to eliminate these, the, the problem that these trees are creating. And that's to get rid of them. Burn them. That is it. You're, and, and this is basically John's message. Don't let the, 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 the dead branches and the dead trees do what's supposed to happen don't, or, or do, do what they do. Don't let them infect the other things. You see, this is, what, this is what John is saying. He's saying, you were supposed to be a blessing to the nations, Israel. You were supposed to care for the other nations, Israel. You were supposed to be a, a, a place where they come and they come for refuge whenever they turn to Yahweh. You're supposed to be a light and a blessing, but you're so rotten, I can't even let you get near them. I've got to chop you down. I've got to get rid of you. Now, listen to me. That is offensive. That is an offensive message. But he's got more. He's not done yet. Luke chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, which I think this is a great response from the crowds. They're not just like mad at him. We'll get there. Um, but they're like, okay, I hear you, John. I hear what you're saying. What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And we'll read more here in just a second, but I think it's really interesting that the first examples that John gives of each of these, or that, that Luke gives and that John replies back with, I think it's interesting that all three of these have to do with money. Now, this text isn't about money. That's not, that's not the primary reason that it's in here, but I do think that it's interesting. This text isn't about money, but it's not not about money. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think what is clear here is that it's about discipleship. But what we do with our money tells us a lot about where our level of discipleship is at. So we can't pretend that, that money is not a part of what this is about. How we handle our money, what we do with our money, teaches us, or tells us about how we live as disciples. It's important what we do with money, and frankly, it's even more important what money does with us. And Luke lays that out there for us, and John does too. So let's keep going. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the, the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news. Does that sound like good news, what he just said? So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. So that last little paragraph is basically uh, Luke saying, uh, John had all of these great things to say, but he also made the king mad, and the king locked him up. That's pretty much what, uh, what that, that says there to end. So this is where John's story kind of comes to an abrupt halt in our narrative here. Uh, he gets imprisoned. Next week we'll see that Jesus gets baptized, and we know from the other Gospels that, that, that John is the one that baptized, uh, that John is the one that, that, that baptized Jesus. And so uh, this is one of those things that sometimes you'll find some people uh, that, will, that will say, well, which one is it? Which one is it? Did, did, did John baptize Jesus or was it somebody else? Because Luke says that John was already in prison whenever that happened. And they'll say, see, there's contradictions in the Bible. Just read the Bible for the way it's meant to be written, and that will clear up much of what you would, that you would deem as a contradiction. The reason that this is in here is because Luke is writing about John for a very specific purpose. If you go to the other Gospels, they're following a little bit more of a chronology. Luke is not here. This is where I say he doesn't work at, like a historian that we would anticipate, right? We would anticipate a historian following a timeline and saying this is what happened. Instead, what he's doing is he's using John to tell the story of Jesus. And so what he wants to do is kind of let, let John introduce the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus and then get John out of the way. He doesn't want to have to continue talking about John because he's done with John. John's whole purpose uh, in these first three chapters of the book of Luke, every time that he talks about John, he's saying, John is saying, look at that guy, look at that guy, look at that guy, 
Look at that guy. Like, that's what he's saying the whole time. And so John wants to say, okay, now we're done talking about him, and we're going to go look at that guy. That's what we'll start next week, and we'll start talking about the ministry of Jesus and what Jesus did. For now, Luke is just focusing on John. So this is why the timeline kind of gets askew here and kind of goes in a weird direction, um, because he's trying to keep their stories from being intermingled. He wants John to serve his purpose and then to get out of the way. Exactly what John would have wanted if somebody were telling his story. This is exactly what John's doing. He's saying, I have to get out of here. I've got to, this guy's coming. I can't even, un, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. I've got to get out of the picture. He's got to be the one uh, that, that you're, you're going to listen to. And here's why. Because when he shows up, he's going to do something far greater than what I did. Luke wants John to serve as the waymaker, the preamble, the, the lead-in to Jesus. And so he tells the story in a way that, that naturally leads itself to that. So what is it that John tells us about Jesus to prepare the way before he steps on the scene? So verse 16 there, John acknowledges the limits of his baptism. He says, what I'm doing here, what, what, what I'm doing here, like my authority and what I'm trying to do is very limited. All that my baptism is meant to do is to prepare the stage and to point you to Jesus. He says, I'm just using water to get my message across here and to try, to try to convince you of how much you need something else. He says, I'm just using water, but Jesus won't work quite the same way. Jesus will come with something else. So let's talk just for a second about this water baptism and, and John's baptism and, and how these things kind of work together. Um, how, John's baptism, like I said, can't point us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. So what is it that John's baptism is really doing? During this time, baptism, John didn't invent baptism. This isn't something new. John took an existing ritual within the Jewish people, within the, the framework of the Jews at the time, and he kind of repurposed it for his own message that he had about Jesus. Uh, what was going on at the time, the way that the ritual of baptism was used is that, uh, that, that the, the Jews demanded any Gentile that would convert to Judaism that they be baptized and that they be circumcised, that they, that they would come forward, be baptized. That it wasn't just enough uh, for them to come forward and make a declaration, I want to follow Yahweh, I want to be a Jew. The way that the Jews saw it is you are filthy you don't just need to be sprinkled. You need to be washed. You need to take a bath. You need to be baptized. And so what would happen is that this was the ritual of uh, a new convert to Judaism, somebody that was new to the faith. They, as Gentiles, were so different, so dirty, they needed something else. So if you decided to convert to become a Jew, this was the ritual that you had to undergo. So what John then does is he looks at this and he says, Oh, you think that's what makes you Jewish is if you go through all of this stuff. Well, here's what I think you need to know, Jews. Here's what I think you need to understand as you're out here in the desert uh, listening to what I have to say. You think you're good as Jews. You think you don't need this bath. You think you're not as dirty as the Gentiles. You think that you are, uh, you are somehow better to them, but you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You need to repent and turn from your sin just like them. This isn't about your heritage. This isn't about, about who you can claim as your father or your grandfather. This is about what God demands of you. 
This is what God demands of all of us. And what he demands is repentance. Jew and Gentile alike. Churchgoer, Jewish person, any of you, all of you, the demands are the same. Repent, turn from your sin, stop trusting in that, stop trusting in, in some heritage, stop, 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 stop trusting in something else, and instead, you must repent. Friends, John's baptism may not still be around today, but his message very much is. Repentance is not an option. It is not an option in the Christian faith. There is not a replacement for it. God's call on our life today is still repent. That has never changed. Now, when you hear repent, that's a solid church word, and there's all kinds of imagery that comes with it. The basic thing that it means is not just, you've heard it, you've heard it said, a change of mind, and kind of linguistically, technically, that's what that word means. It's a change of mind, but it's not just a change of mind. It's a change of mind that's accompanied by a change of heart that's accompanied by a change of action. That's why John says, bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. And that is not saying you need to do the right thing so that God will now like you. That is saying you need to do the right thing because of who God is and what his calling is on you. And so you need to stop the sin, change your mind, change your heart, and change the way you live. This is not, I'm going to make this as clear as I can, this is not a way to earn salvation. This is the way to see that the salvation that you profess has actually taken hold and taken root in you. That's his whole message to the people of Israel. You call yourselves the children of Abraham. You call yourselves the, the, the children of God. You call yourselves these things, but you are not because nothing in your life reflects that you actually belong to Yahweh. And so what John is saying is you need to belong to Yahweh. Repentance is not an option. It's popular today to talk about Jesus as though he's some kind of kindness fairy. That he's like he's just this kind of guy that's out there and like all will be well. But we have to see the full picture of Jesus if we want to understand the full picture of hope that he brings. Is he full of grace? Yes, absolutely. He's also full of righteousness. And the two the, he, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't hedge on either of those. He demands that righteousness from us. And so let's be clear. John's message is not great hope for us. John's message so far is not great hope for us at all. We sing that song this morning, I'm a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. And we can sing that and confess that completely. So then whenever we hear John's message who says, repent, turn, stop being this way and start being this way, then what that should make you say is, uh-oh, I have a problem. Because if it's not one thing, it's another. My sin is ever-present before me everywhere I go. And if I were there, I would ask John this very question. I would say, I swear, I repent, I swear, I don't want to do these things, but what happens when I get home and I do it again? What happens when I get home and it's still there? Because I know that I will, because my willpower is weak, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, prone to, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I'll be honest, I don't know what John's answer would have been at the time. I really don't know what he would have said. Fortunately for us, John's baptism and John's message is not the entire story that we get told. 
The call to repentance is still crystal clear in Scripture, as is the rest of John's message. With Jesus and his winnowing fork in his hand. And if you don't have that as part of your view of Jesus, then you have a very incomplete view of Jesus. Without repentance, we have a very big problem. But that's why they call it the gospel, the good news. So far, we've heard very little good news from John. It says that his message was one of good news, but so far, we've heard very little good news. Jesus is ready to punish those who don't repent, and I know no matter how much I try to repent, I cannot do this on my own. I am not strong enough. So what do we do now? And this is why what what John says is so important. Jesus will send fire, and he'll send the Spirit too. Now, that fire could be referring to a fire of judgment. Certainly, that goes with the rest of what John is saying there, with the the winnowing fork in his hand. But we also know that Luke is also the writer of the book of Acts. And we know that that the way they talk about the way the Spirit came at Pentecost and the way the Spirit came uh, in in the early chapters of the book of Acts, it, it, it comes as with fire. And the Spirit draws us there. So we know that he will send the Spirit too. And it is the Spirit that draws us to repentance and the Spirit that sanctifies us and causes us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So will we be perfect? No, absolutely not. But there is a mark on your life if you are a follower follower of Christ. If you are to claim yourself as a follower of Christ, there there is a measure in which your life should bear some fruit that says, I am following him. He takes the old creation, the one that is, that is corrupted by the, the blight of the world, the sin of the world, and he gives us a new flesh. Is that flesh made perfect in this life? No, no, it's not. We don't, we don't have a perfection theology saying we can obtain perfection in this life. But we know that the, the, the promise of the Spirit is that God is continually working and drawing us in there. And as John says, uh, as John says there, it is, is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And even then, it is not that fruit that saves me. You don't, you don't come before God whenever you face judgment and say, God, look at my fruit. What you say is, God, I am fully dependent upon you and your work, not my actions. It is Jesus himself through the work of the Spirit. I could spend the next two hours up here walking through this and explaining this, but I think the easiest way for me to do this is just to let Paul explain this. I'm just going to read through Romans 8 right now. Not all of it. I'd like to. I could. But I'm going to read through Romans 8. I want you to hear how he says, this is what the Spirit now does. Jesus who comes and brings the Spirit, this is now what he does. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a message that, the follow, that, that, that if I'm standing out there listening to John, I need to hear. That is the message of hope that Jesus brings. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin and the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is all pointing us to Jesus and saying, this is what the Spirit does in us. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the things of flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit of Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those, are in the, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, if you repent, if you do exactly what John says, but you're just doing it in order to, 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 to kind of prove something or to somehow say, look at me, look at what I've done, you cannot, prove, you cannot please God that way. But then Paul goes on, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If you have trusted in Christ, the spirit dwells in you. That happens instantaneously. The moment that you uh, give your life to Christ, that that Christ comes in and and rescues you and saves you, uh, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'd like to just keep reading through all of Romans chapter 8. It is so rich and explains so much about how the spirit works in us. But you have to understand, you see, Paul is picking up on the same language from John and the same language later that we will hear from Jesus about how the Spirit works and how apart from Jesus, apart from him, you are dead. The only way to have the Spirit is that you confess those sins. And yes, you repent and you turn exactly what John has called you to, but that is not something you do in your own flesh because you cannot please God and you cannot get anywhere with that. But instead, you trust the Spirit, and the Spirit works. But make no mistake about it. A picture of Jesus who doesn't judge and doesn't have his winnowing fork in his hands is not a full picture of Jesus. There's no need for hope if that's the case, because there is no fear and judgment. But the, 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 the clear thing the Bible teaches us is apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit, we should have that fear. And so John's message remains. But the hope is bigger than the fear. Because Christ is big enough to forgive us, to save us, to rescue us. I can keep on going. I'm going to end just because of time this morning. But this is the picture that we have, and this is the picture that John comes and he says, here's my message, repent. But look to Jesus, because his message is fuller, and it's the complete picture of hope. And we'll keep looking at that as we go throughout the rest of the book of Luke. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we, as we consider this, as we consider even the words we've sung this morning, it is our confession that we are sinners. That our flesh is still weak. But Father, it is also our confession that we trust in the Spirit. That the Spirit would do His work in us and that He would sanctify us and that He would, he, 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 he would, he would cause us to trust in You for everything. And so, Father, we trust the work of the Spirit this morning. And we ask that you would would come and you would do that work.